For all your fantasy football needs, check out the Ringer Fantasy Football Show with me, Danny Kelly, along with Danny Heifetz and Craig Horlbeck. That's the Ringer Fantasy Football Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Netflix, presenting The Crown as the beloved series bids farewell. Deserving of praise on every level, says New York Magazine. Throughout its groundbreaking six-season run, The Crown has featured three different casts, earned 273 award nominations, and secured 70 award wins, including outstanding drama series. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. From creator and writer Peter Morgan, the final season stars Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki. The Crown, for your Emmy consideration in all categories. It is Monday, September 18th. We've talked a lot on the show about the strikes. Writers are now close to hitting 153 days, which would make this the longest labor stoppage for one of the big three unions in the history of Hollywood. The actors are now in their third month of the walkout. Some new talks are scheduled this week with the writers and studios. We'll see how that goes. But even with a quick resolution at this point, we're looking at the end of the year to restart production. That would be a full eight months of inactivity. Big summer movies sitting unfinished. No late night TV shows. No returning or new scripted shows. And now... Not a lot of daytime TV either. Shout out to Drew Barrymore and her hosted videos on Instagram. The strikes will end at some point, but it all raises the question, what's the permanent damage here? The California economy has already taken a $3 billion hit, and that was as of August. Shout out to Gavin Newsom and Karen Bass, the LA mayor, for doing exactly nothing to resolve this fight. But I'm talking after the strikes. After all, in 2008, as most people know, the strike ushered in the era of reality TV, thanks in part to the experimentation that happened out of necessity. It also accelerated the purge of a lot of producers from the studio lots because the studios had to cut costs and they realized they didn't need to pay these huge deals. Strikes can be a reset on the business of sorts, a chance for companies to reassess what they're doing or finally pull the trigger on cuts or changes they wanted to make but were afraid to do. No doubt there will be lasting change once this strike is over in Hollywood. But how? That's what we're talking about today. We've got Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg back in here. And it's pre-gaming the permanent damage from the strikes. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg. Welcome back, Lucas. Great to be here. Sad I was not in Toronto with you. How many movies did you see? Oh, you know, it was actually kind of a nice Toronto. I only saw three, four movies, but I picked a good one. I saw American Fiction, which ended up winning the Audience Award, Cord Jefferson's movie, which was actually very fun. Hope it gets a real Oscar trajectory now. But I, I have a take on Toronto without movie stars. I think it's kind of better. I know it's a disaster for the movies. I know that there's no buzz, no promotion. Well, it must be a lot easier to get around as a as an absolutely. Attendee. Like I went to a Blue Jays game on Saturday with a producer friend of mine who said, you know, normally I would have had to do the whole international junket, you know, hang with my client. He's a manager producer, and like 
now we went to the Blue Jays game on a Saturday afternoon. The parties were like more mellow. I did a dinner there for Puck and everyone kind of was able to show up on time. Like without stars, it's actually much more mellow and smooth and fun. But obviously, it's a total disaster for the movies. I mean, you do not want, they do not want to replicate this ever again if they can, just because nobody's talking about the movies because everyone talks about the stars when they're at Toronto. But that's a whole separate issue. Not what we're talking about today. Today, we are talking the strike impact and what we are likely going to see long term or permanent damage from the strike. We've gone back and forth about this in the past a little bit, but I feel like it's it's good to focus on it just because we're heading now into the point of no return almost, where if this doesn't get resolved soon, we will be looking at eight months of inactivity in the business or near inactivity, which will have pretty devastating consequences, I think. So we're going to go back and forth here. You're going to pick one permanent damage person or entity or concept then I'll pick another one and we will debate what's going on here. So you go first. What do you think is the biggest permanent damage that we're going to see from the strike? I'm going to start with a concept. This is the moment, obviously, that Peak TV died. RIP, pour one out. Yep, it's been a decade, basically. You can, you can start it to when Netflix released House of Cards in 2013. And from then on, people just pump money into the system. More shows every year, more money spent on production. You have p- media companies spending on TV net, basic broadcast networks, cable networks, and streaming services at the same time. Obviously, some of this retrenchment had already started, but the strike is when it, it dies for good because you're just not going to see spending come back to, to the same levels that it had been at. Or at the very least, even if spending is at the same level, I don't think you'll see output at what it was because you look across these companies and they realize if you're Disney and you were making shows for ABC and all these cable networks and two streaming services, you can take a show and have it maybe be a Hulu original, but also show it on ABC. I think you're going to see a lot more people spreading their projects across multiple services. And there are a lot of ramifications from this that we can get into. But you've seen every company, maybe except for Netflix, signal that there will be a change in approach coming out of this. What do you think the actual retrenchment is going to be? You know, I've talked to people who say, 300, like it's going to cut in half. I don't know that it's going to get that drastic, but I could see the volume getting down to four, 450, which would be a 33% drop in the number of scripted series with ramifications down the pipeline. Everything from overall deals to writer deals to the movies that are coming out of Netflix and the others that, you know, you're not going to probably see as many movies made for streaming as once were. So, what do you see there? When FX, which has been sort of the the unofficial arbiter of how much gets released, and they put out their their tally each year, I think we're still at broadcast and cable combined being at least like 200 scripted shows, maybe a little less than that. That number is going to come way down, even if streaming stays pretty consistent. So yeah, I, I'd say 450, 500 is my conservative guess on what it comes down to, which is still a lot, still way more than it has been. Yeah, I I mean, we're seeing it already in the experiments that are happening during Strike Monday Night Football is going to air all season on ABC. That's a strike move. We're seeing Yellowstone on CBS, which is a repurposed Paramount Network show. These, These could be strike experiments. They also could be permanent experiments if they work. 
And, you know, if they can cut costs and if the desire is to show profitability and you're not hitting any speed bumps with subscribers, I mean, that's the big thing. If these streamers do not experience subscriber losses during the strike, then the lesson is we can spend less and we can still maintain our growth. And if that's the case, then all bets are off on the cost cutting. Now, I'm not sure that's going to be the case. The roadmap here has been that if you spend on content, the subscriber numbers go up and subscriber numbers still do matter, even though profitability is the goal. So I don't know that that will be the lesson. But if it is, then that's going to be very bad news for the rest of the creative community. Yeah, I don't know that the lesson is going to be, oh, wow, we don't have to release a bunch of new stuff because you forget that streaming services are still putting out new programs pretty regularly. Right now they are, but I'm talking like what's going to happen in the spring. If we get into the spring and, you know, where Netflix was planning on the new season of Stranger Things and there's no Stranger Things and the sub numbers don't go down, Stranger Things is enormously expensive. So the lesson there is maybe we don't need a Stranger Things every Q2 to meet our numbers. Yeah, see, that's where that's the lesson I don't think they're going to learn. I think they will still feel that they need the big shows. The hits, it's, yeah, the big. Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, you look through history, there is a real increase in signups for Netflix when there's new Stranger Things. HBO yeah. doesn't report in the same way, but I'm sure when they had Game of Thrones on, it made a big deal. Those those big hits are pretty invaluable. Um, I think the question is if they need the same volume of other things. And look, Netflix has been pretty consistent that they still feel like they benefit from having a really large amount of programming and a diverse amount. But I think in particular, at some of the more traditional media companies that had ramped up dramatically over the last couple of years while still funding broadcast and cable. Because I think the other part of this is that broadcast TV in general, like budgets are going to go down, the number of shows is going to go down, more reality, more sports. You brought up Monday Night Football. You brought up re-airing Yellowstone. I think some of that stuff sticks around coming out of this. All right, so that's the general one. My pick for the first big change, uh, permanent change out of the strike, I think it's going to be late night. I have already heard that when these shows return, there are cuts coming. And the notion of a five-night-a-week, year-round, late-night, TV show may be a dying entity. The incentives here are to maybe go three nights a week, four nights a week. Maybe don't go in the summers. Like, you know, Kimmel takes the summers off. I think when these show hosts deals are up, we may see some hard conversations about some salary reductions because these late night hosts make a lot of money and the productions of these shows are going to be squeezed even more than they have been. And the question is, have people now been trained to not expect new shows every night? And are they looking to TikTok and other places for their clips of funny stuff? I just uh, I think the entire late night segment as a genre is going to be challenged because the audience is just not there anymore. Yeah, I mean, look, I've been surprised that those hosts still get paid as much as they do when the audiences have been shrinking and they are, for a lot of people, or at least for certain demographics, they're sort of glorified YouTube hosts, right? It's like clips that get circulated on social media. People who are not tuning in to, to watch live. They have other value. They are oh, spokespeople for the networks. And Kimmel does the upfront. Host award and shows. And they do. And, stuff. you know, yes. Ben Winston came in here, the producer of, Cor of Corden, and said that they, you know, they've done things like product placement and selling shows to other places. Like, they do generate value. But 
I think that is ultimately going to be a diminished business to the point where it doesn't make sense to carry a $30 million a year host and the production costs of a nightly talk show for most of these networks. Where do the costs come out, though? Sure, you can go to the host and say, we're going to cut your salary by $5 million and that will get very acrimonious. But can you really cut back on the staff that much? Well, if you're doing fewer episodes, like if you take the summers off, or if you, you know, instead of the number of episodes per year, you cut it by 20%, then you say, okay, well, we also need to cut the cost of the show by 20%. I mean, I think that just ties in with more broadly, the, the budget's being cut big time at broadcast, and you'll see them try to trim in as many different places as they can. All right, next one. Give me an individual. Give me some, some person that will have some permanent damage post-strike. So there's the executive path and the talent path. And you're basically asking me if I'm going to be the one to toss out Bob Iger. Or not. <laughs> I wanted you to say it, not me. <laughs> so, so that begs the question, is the strike to blame for Iger's diminished reputation? Or was this going to happen anyways on his return to the CEO job at Disney, given the economics of the business in general? Look, I tend to think of the long-term impact of the strike. Having recently gone through the pandemic, I think the strike is somewhat similar in that it accelerates or amplifies things that are already happening. It doesn't create brand new problems for the most part. And so the answer to your question is both. I think that Iger was taking reputational hits either way because he was having to cut staff. He was having to cut costs. Sure. He was having to... 5,000 layoffs post. will do that to you. Yeah, in a way that he just hadn't before, right? Like one of the reasons right. why his image was so sterling is because he'd been buying and doing more. And when you do that, people tend, if, especially if it works, as it did in his case, people tend to like you. If you are the person who's having to, to fire people or tell people why their strategy doesn't work, that makes enemies in a way that he hasn't had to in quite the same way. But I do but think still, that, that I do that think that the strike made it much worse because look, he came from the world of TV. He just always put his foot forward in the right place when communicating things publicly. And his comments at Sun Valley specific to the strike, along with his pay, along with all these other things, mean that for the first time, I really feel like the talent community views him as an out-of-touch rich guy, which he yeah. just hasn't been before. Right. He was one of us. He was the guy who came from being a weatherman and ended up running the world's biggest creative company. And he was one of us. And now he's a suit. And that CNBC interview, in a way that I think caused lasting damage to his reputation, felt so out of touch and so misguided that the reputational damage, I think, it, all, it galvanized everything. Fun fact here. One of Puck's interns had Bob Iger as his screensaver on his phone, and he took it off after those comments. I, <laughs> I'm, I'm floored by two parts of that. One, that anyone would have Bob Iger as her screensaver. A little weird, especially for a junior in college, yes. Yes, and that you would want an intern who has Bob Iger as her screensaver. Oh, are you, I'm sure it was the reason he got hired. I was not involved in the interview. But imagine, I mean, we cover this guy a lot. Imagine... The guy coming into the interview saying, I love this business so much, I have Bob Iger as my screensaver. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. But it's, I guess it's a little bit worshipy, you know? A so. little, but no more. He took it off. Iger has, is no longer his idol. So that is an anecdotal effect of the Sun Valley comments. 
This episode is brought to you by Netflix, presenting The Crown as the beloved series bids farewell. Deserving of praise on every level, says New York Magazine. Throughout its groundbreaking six-season run, The Crown has featured three different casts, earned 273 award nominations, and secured 70 award wins, including outstanding drama series. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. From creator and writer Peter Morgan, the final season stars Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki. The Crown, for your Emmy consideration in all categories. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. What do you think about Drew Barrymore? Do you think she is going to have lasting permanent damage here? No, no, I agree. I agree. I think she backtracks soon enough. Because the thing you have to remember is, yes, I get why folks get mad at her, but she also has a ton of other employees who are getting crushed by this, who she clearly was thinking about. I haven't done the full deep dive on what happened there. Maybe you have, and it was like more of a personal thing for her or people were threatening her. But I do think that some of these hosts are looking at their staff and going like, we got to get these people back to work. Oh, yeah. You've got them in, in your ear all the time saying like, I can't feed my family. And there was pressure behind the scenes, in, like enormous pressure on both sides on her. I mean, the guild was in her ear a lot. And, you know, she's got a contract. This show, it's not like a network show. It's not like the late night shows where you are employed by the network and you can kind of do what you want. This is a syndicated show that is beholden to the stations. And the stations don't have to carry your show if you don't have new episodes. They can bump you off the air, or they could put you at 3 a.m. and never bring you back. So there are financial, real financial considerations that she was very bad at articulating in the whole hostage video nonsense. Do you know why talk shows have been, because I wasn't reporting during the last strike, and my understanding is that talk, a lot of talk shows came back. Why haven't they this time? Well, Just pressure? I, I wrote about this in my Puck newsletter. I think the climate is different. The social media aspect and the shaming and all the stuff that goes on if you come back. I mean, we see now Bill Maher, who I figured would be the one who didn't kowtow to a lot of the pressure. He has now done that. He says it's because he knows that the writers are now talking to the studios and there may be an end in sight. But in the last strike, first of all, in the late night world, there was a wild card in that David Letterman owned his show and had an interim agreement. So he was going to come back. And the other hosts felt, you know, it was still a very competitive environment. And they felt competitive with Letterman. And the Guild, you know, kind of did that deal with Letterman and paved the way for these others to come back. And I think, you know, the statements at the time from people like Conan and Leno and Kimmel was that they wanted to take care of their staffs. It was the same concerns that Drew Barrymore had. The, the late night hosts were paying for their staffs. It was only at the six week mark in the last one when they came back. And the late night hosts were paying for their staffs, which was an enormous burden. And they wanted to get people back to work. Now they've taken a different tack. The, you know, obviously the, the late night hosts are doing the podcast for Spotify where they're raising money for their staffs. But I think it was just a combination of factors. 
Big one being the climate is different now and the social media thing. And the guild is so much more aggressive now. I mean, think about the stuff that's happening in this strike that didn't happen last time. The Writers Guild did not shut down productions that were already shooting like they did this time. In the last strike, they let those things go because there was no writing going on. They were already written. But this time they galvanized via social media and other ways. And they shut down those productions with picket lines. So I think there's a lot of stuff going on in this strike that's more aggressive than the past one. But uh, the late night thing is just one aspect. All right. So my next concept here is international, because I think the damage that's going to be done is that the streaming services are going to lean less on U.S. scripted and more on international, which is something that they've already kind of been doing, especially at Netflix. But if we are into the winter and spring and these international shows that are taking the place of U.S. scripted, if those are successful, there's so much more upside if you can have an international show that plays in the U.S. than just doing a U.S. show. So I think that the impact here is going to be more international content. I actually partially disagree with you. Most of the, a lot of these media companies have scaled back dramatically on their investment overseas. So your Netflixes, your Amazons are still proceeding apace abroad. Apple does, although it's on a much smaller scale, at least so far. But Disney, Warner Brothers Discovery have pulled back internationally big time. Paramount wasn't spending that much, but has pulled back a little bit. NBC Universal barely operates, at least from a programming perspective. They have Sky in, in Europe, but or Comcast does, but from a programming, they don't do as much. So I don't think you see them spending internationally in the same way. Now, maybe they ramp up and eventually decide to do it, but they Yeah, that's what I'm saying, especially if they get numbers that say they're, they're doing, these shows are doing a number. But part of their cost cutting has been to pull back on that and focus on domestic and Disney's whole strategy seems to be a return to our titles are ones that are popular everywhere and we don't have to spend as much on the ground in Korea or India or Latin America. And so I don't know that I see them pulling that back particularly quickly. And I don't think we're, it's not like we've come out of the strike period being like, oh, look at all these international shows that were huge smashes over the last couple of months. No, but we haven't gotten there yet. I think that that's coming. And I'm not talking about the traditional media companies. I agree. The Disney strategy is like, we make Marvel and Star Wars. Everybody loves that. I'm talking about the three major streamers, Apple, Amazon, and Netflix. Already, my wife is watching some Apple international show that she loves. And it's because there's not that much else going on. And I think Amazon and Netflix are also going to see these numbers in holiday season, spring, and they're going to say, okay, people are willing to sample this stuff more. I know we haven't seen the return of a Squid Game and that some of these investments haven't necessarily turned into the global hits that they envisioned. But in an environment with fewer choices, they may pop. I'm Mr. Worldwide here, but you're sounding like a real downer. You're preparing for the strike into February. I'm not saying that the strike is going to go till February. I'm saying that the impact of the strike yeah, yeah, is going yeah, to yeah. be Next felt year, I hear you. in February and spring. Because I think that's where we're really going to see a lot of the hurt. It hasn't arrived yet. I mean, like next summer, the box office is going to be impacted Brutal. because yeah. all of these summer movies are sitting half finished. My next one is a corollary to that, or I guess my version of, of what I think will happen. And this is pretty inside baseball, but the overall deal is a thing of the past. Oh, you mean done? No, it's not done. 
It's just scaled back. Scaled back dramatically. So these are deals where big studios sign writer, producer, actor, someone with a production company to a deal. They fund the company. And you typically get either exclusive rights to anything they make or a first look at, at anything that they, that they want to make. And these are the deals, if, if you've read about like deals getting suspended, those have been suspended. So far, to my knowledge, none of them have actually been cut, which has happened before. But there was this boom in overall deals during early peak TV. That was, you know, the, the Shonda Rhimes Netflix deal, the Ryan Murphy Netflix deal, the Seth MacFarlane deal, all these huge deals. Other than a few people, those are not going to happen anymore. Or yeah, they're going to be okay, way cut back. You gave me one detail there that is very telling. None of these deals have been cut during the strike. And I think that is very telling because what does that say to you? It says that these studios and streamers want to maintain the relationship with these writer producers. They're not cutting bait. They're not retrenching in totality here. They are planning for a post-strike future where maybe they will want to be in business, not with everybody, but with some. Sure. Warner Brothers will still want to be in business with Greg Berlanti and Mindy Kaling. Netflix will still want to be in business with Shonda Rhimes. But the random writer on X popular show who got an overall deal is not getting an overall deal next time. That is true. But I don't know that the strike is necessarily the reason for that. I think the overall bubble popping in peak TV is more to blame for that. But I do think the strike probably exacerbated that impact. You asked me about Drew Barrymore. So I have two names for you. Do you think that there's any long-term damage to either Bill Maher or Ryan Murphy? Bill Maher, no. I mean, Bill Maher's brand is like a fuck you brand. He has kind of built his comedy persona on that. So what is like SAG-AFTRA and WGA going to do to him long-term? Like not book guests on his show? Like he doesn't really have that many celebrities anyways. It's more authors and political people. And his writers have been with him forever. So it's not like they're going to turn their back on him. I don't think any long-term damage for, for Bill Maher. Ryan Murphy, I don't think so. I mean, yeah, he kept his shows going during the strike. And he got in this weird fight with a strike captain where he like threatened litigation for talking shit about him. I don't know. I mean, if he's, he's still one of the most powerful producers in TV, I, I don't think, you know, he's now got a new home at Disney. I don't, I don't think it's going to be a problem for him. Good to be a good to be a rich TV producer. Yeah, exactly. No, I think mo for the most part, these people, the the long term damage to anyone who gets becomes like a brief villain during the strike goes away. People forget about it. We move on. They realize that you know they are forgiven in the heat of the moment. Well, who were the villains from the two thousand and eight strike? Did any of those last? What was the permanent damage there? The fact that I can't tell you any of them is probably telling, right? That was the strike that that made reality TV ubiquitous. True, but I'm talking in, in terms of people villains. Like there was, you know, I'm trying to think even who it was. Like there, there weren't, it was just sort of the, the faceless AMPTP. I don't know that we really had villains like we do in this one. Again, social media has really created this thing. The whole David Zasloff commencement speech and all of that stuff that went viral and turned him into a target. Like the Fran Drescher comments that have gone viral during this strike, of you know, the class warfare stuff. We didn't have that as much last time. It was heated, but I don't remember there being these like this villainization of people. Do you think that that is keeping people held accountable in a beneficial way? Or do you think all of this is just melodrama that's unnecessary? Depends on your perspective. I mean, I think that the Writers Guild is absolutely getting leverage from the activity online. They are, I mean, people are afraid to speak out against them. I mean, look at this whole drama and what happened with the 
showrunners that wanted a meeting with the guild leadership. They were so terrified of even asking for that because they knew that everyone would pounce on social media. I mean, I wrote a whole column about this and the, the, the fact that you have all of these people staying silent during this shutdown, I think because they don't want the loudest voices on Twitter to come after them. It's unpleasant. <laughs> yeah, they come after Lucas. They come after both of us <laughs> when it's something that doesn't toe the line. And I think it does have an impact on the mainstream media as well. I mean, no journalist wants to become a target online, even if you're just doing your job and reporting on facts that are unflattering to the guild. It's it's not pleasant. You have to be willing to take that. And a lot of outlets don't want to be in the crosshairs like that. So it is impacting the way things are covered, which ultimately I think does impact the leverage. I'm not saying it's dispositive. I don't think that the AMPTP is sitting there saying, oh, you know, we're not popular on Twitter. We better make a, a deal that's more favorable to them. But I do think that these things kind of do matter and the solidarity or at least the perception of solidarity that is out there for the WGA um, is impacted a lot by the activity online. All right. Well, we will see about the permanent damage. The nice thing about this prediction show is that we will have real impact and answers to go over six, eight, ten months after the strike. Thanks, Lucas. Thanks, Matt. All right, we're back with the call sheet. Craig, did you watch the CBS premiere of Yellowstone after football? Not only do I not watch Yellowstone, if you think I'm watching <laughs> CBS, Yellowstone. Yeah. Well, they did plug the crap out of it during NFL. It was kind of hilarious. Taylor Sheridan, the creator, was there at the Cowboys game sitting in the box with Jerry Jones. And Taylor was wearing a ridiculous cowboy hat. When's the Jerry Jones storyline in Yellowstone happening? <laughs> it probably will happen at some point. Yeah, um, it makes perfect sense. No, the numbers on Yellowstone on CBS on Sunday night were pretty good. I think internally at CBS, they had thought it might do around 5 million viewers. Turned out it did 6.56 million viewers, which was the largest scripted audience on broadcast since May. Um, although that's a little bit misleading because there really hasn't been much scripted on broadcast since May, thanks to the strike. Uh, but it was up 11% from a year ago scripted premieres. So this experiment, which is happening because of the strike, uh, is working. Paramount Network, which airs Yellowstone, is a network that most people cannot find, don't know where it is. And that show still does huge numbers there. Paramount, through the quirk of a bad deal done many years ago, does not have the streaming rights to Yellowstone. That is at Peacock, which is still funny to me. So what do they do? They put it on CBS because they have the linear rights. They, it's a sister network and it's doing a number. So my prediction today is that they are going to do this more. CBS is going to milk the hits. Other networks are going to follow. We could, by the end of this strike, see a block of The Office and 30 Rock and other comedies on NBC. It's just going to get really bad. And these networks have now shown they can put old shows on and people will watch. You know what this is, Matt? This is the Eras Tour for CBS. That's what each <laughs> network should do. Absolutely. You ready to go back to 1995? We got your Murphy Brown for you. Sure. I mean, if you're Turner, play Sopranos. They own Friends now, right? Play Friends. Yeah. And it's funny because they are all on streaming. But uh, yeah, this is linear we're talking about. It's funny. I have heard from sources at the company that it was quite a challenge to edit Yellowstone for a CBS broadcast edition because of all the F-bombs and the Kelly Riley nudity and a lot of things that you cannot show on CBS. So it was a 
Herculean effort. Apparently, Taylor Sheridan had to get involved. You know, on CBS, you can't just bleep the swear words because you're not allowed to show the mouth moving. You can't show their mouth even if you bleep the word. So they had to, like, cut around it in some creative editing. Well, I, that would be better than if there was bleeps in the episode, I think. <laughs> that so, would be a little smart weird. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? Good for them, I guess. They're doing what they can during the strike. All right, that's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Lucas Shaw. I want to thank producer Greg Horlbeck, our editor, Jesse Lopez. And I want to thank you. We will see you later this week. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.